Mark chapter 7. It would have been read already, but um, I'm just going to read. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whosoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. In, in the reading of the scripture, in seeking to get something from it that I can bring to you today, the scripture in itself just speaks so clearly it's like, okay, <laughs> what, more, what more can be said? Um, but those of you that know me by now know that I am a lover of context. Um, you can see something, and if you don't know the context of a thing, you can get the completely wrong picture of what it is that you're seeing. I could give many examples of that. If you were to see me, um, I don't know, on a football pitch, because I visited the Molyneux Stadium, it would be wrong to assume that because I was on a football pitch that I was a Premier League footballer. 
<laughs> Many would not get that misconception. Um, but context is everything. Amen? Well, it's not everything, but it, it helps us a lot. So, there, were two, there was one thing that really kind of stuck out to me, and Jesus talking about the what, what he called the traditions of the elders. So Jesus said to the Pharisees when they came to question him about his disciples eating with unwashed hands, he says that you listen to, or you take, or they asked him, why don't they follow the traditions of the elders? And I was like, you know, I don't really know what I have an understanding of what the tradition of the elders is. You know, we know our elders are those that are older than us, those that have probably gone before us. We could maybe replace it with our ancestors. Um, and there are traditions that are passed down, some cultural traditions that we have that are passed down. Um, and sometimes we don't know, we don't even know the reasons why we follow those traditions, but we just follow them because that's what has always been done. Um, I'm sure you've heard the story of the housewife that cooks the uh, joint of meat in two dishes. And she doesn't know why she does that, but that's just how mum did it. And she asked mum, why do you do it? And mum says, I don't know why I do it. That's how my mum did it. And then they ask great grandma, why do, why do you cook the, the meat in two dishes and she says we just didn't have enough money to buy one dish that was big enough to house the one piece of meat so and and it was gone on with generations and generations without questioning why is this and I guess that was my understanding of the tradition of the elders it's just stuff that has been passed down but it wasn't something that I really looked into and then in studying I kind of <laughs> entered into a, a, a kind of wormhole of study which was really interesting and it, and it really challenged some of my ignorance in terms of things that we just kind of we just kind of allow we just like we just accept but we don't really understand so I, I kind of began to then think well I know what a Pharisee is but why do we have why do we have Pharisees? And if you look at it, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, we, we call that, that period, we often refer to it as the, the silent years. Yes? And, and we say it was the silent years because it was a time where we say God was silent. God wasn't speaking through kings. He wasn't speaking through prophets. He wasn't raising up judges um, to speak for him. Um, and it seemed as if God was silent. But in that time, there were a lot of things that were happening. But I guess as a result, we come into the New Testament and there are some things that are established parts of Jewish life that we didn't see in the Old Testament and we just accept them. You know, in the Old Testament, we don't see synagogues. So where did they come from? We don't see Pharisees or Sadducees. So where do they come from? We, we just kind of accept the fact that um, that they're now under um, Roman rule. When when we left, we saw a people that had, you know, come back and they'd rebuilt the walls and they'd rebuilt the temple. And it was like, we just accept these things, don't we? And we don't really look into them. Well, I, I, I can speak for myself. 
don't really look into them, don't really hear them um, talked about that much. So I was looking, what's this tradition of the elders? What are the Pharisees? Um, And I think it's important for us to understand that even though those 400 years we say that God wasn't speaking, it doesn't mean that nothing was happening. It doesn't mean that nothing was happening because we know that God's word stands forever. Amen? And I believe that when God speaks, it echoes. (laughs) It echoes through generations and through times and it continues to stand. So even if God never said another word about anything, God has said enough for his, for the mission of God (laughs) to continue. Amen? Amen. But I thank God that he still speaks. (laughs) Bless the Lord. Amen. Um, So, we kind of have this period, and as I say, we kind of leave the Jews, and the temple's been built, and the walls have been, um, the walls of Jerusalem have been built, and there's people that have come back from exile. And it's like, okay, what's what's going to happen? What's happening to these Jews, to God's people? What's going to happen to them? What's going on with them? And we know that through history, that there's a guy that comes along called Alexander the Great. I call him the Great. <laughs> yes, my history, my history scholar Porsche just raised their eyebrows. Um, and he comes along and he basically conquers much of the known world. Yeah? He conquers much of the known world. And Alexander, he's curious <laughs> in many different ways. He's very curious. He's curious about different civilizations. He's curious about different forms of worship. He's, he's curious about many different things. And in his taking over um, the world, instead of like, you know, taking over and enforcing all of his views, his beliefs, his opinions on the people that he takes over, he's like, I just, I just need your submission. So if you submit to me, I'll pretty much leave you to do whatever it is that you've got to do, but you'll be under my rulership. And that was, that was one of the key strategies that he used in taking over the world. So there were people that were like, okay, there's this mighty army, there's this mighty force, and we can't really fight against them. And actually, all they're asking for us to do is just come under their, their rule. Then it's kind of the best of a bad deal, right? So they accept this, but then Alexander dies. And Alexander dies without an heir, so there's no one to continue his kind of mode of operating. And so then we come into the Hellenistic period. And the Hellenistic period is when Greeks, because so Alexander, he was, he was of the Greeks. and um, So Greeks come along and they want to kind of espouse their views and their worship and their gods and their doctrine onto all of these places across the world. And if anybody's going to stand up and say, you know, no, that's a step too far. It's going to be the people of God. Amen? So around 200, um, 200 BC, Judea fell into the occupation of the Seleucid Empire. So this is an empire that rose up kind of after Alexander died, and they took over Judea 
and there were, it's an empire of Syria. And there's a ruler called um, Antichus, Antichus IV. And he comes along and he says to the Jews, look, you can't do this worship that you've always been doing. You're not, I'm not going to let you continue with your um, sacrifices to this God, with your rituals, with your priesthood, with your culture. You need to come under what you need to come under Hellenization. You need to be like us. You need to be like the Greeks. And so you have this split in the people of God where there are some people who for a better life, for an easy life, they kind of succumb and they basically take on the gods and the rituals and the worship of the Greeks. And then you have Jews that are so steadfast to know this is what we believe this is who we are this is this is our identity and there is no other god but Yahweh and they they hold fast to that so then there becomes a warring amongst the Jews themselves of these that kind of want to assimilate and these that want to stay true to what they have always been and in that warring um, Antichius comes and he basically takes over the temple he, you know, he takes over Judea, takes over the temple, desecrates the temple, and does away with um, the Jewish way of life. But he he puts a high priest in place, and but the high priest is Hellenized. So the high priest is like, no, we're not going to do any sacrifices. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And he kills the rightful the rightful high priest. So we know that in, in the Jews, it's a lot about um, what is passed down. Yeah, it's a lot about what's hereditary. So if, you're, if your father was a high priest, you, you're then in the, in the priesthood. You're born into the priesthood. You're born into the Levitical lineage. Yes? Okay. So, so this happens, and they go to a place called Medin. And there's a leader at this place called Medin called um, Atrafius. And basically what they say is that, Atrafius, we want your people to worship like we worship and we want you to offer sacrifices to our gods. And Atrafius says, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And there's another guy that's there and he's a Jew but in fear of the repercussions of that stance, he then goes to make the sacrifice to these foreign gods. And Matrifius takes out his sword and he kills him. And from then, a revolt ensues. And then they begin to kill and fight against the ruling powers and they overcome them. So then they, uh, Matrifius, he has some sons. And um, Matrifius, his last name, um, or that the family is known by two names, but one of the names is the Maccabees. And he has a son called Judas Maccabee. Um, and once Matrifius dies, Judas Maccabee takes over, and basically they, they assimilate an army of Jews that are holding fast to their understanding of the Torah, their understanding of the laws of Moses, and they are fighting for Israel. They are fighting for, for their land. And so they overcome the power of um, the Seleucians 
Sadducians. And they establish, they try to establish um, Jewish rule and Jewish custom as it has always been. So one of the sons of Metrophias becomes high priest. Are you still with me? I know this is kind of, a, it's a bit history, but it's, it's good for us to know this stuff. So he becomes high priest. Um, and so he then becomes effectively the leader and the ruler of Judea. But there, there are questions because is he of the right lineage to be a high priest? And there are questions about the temple because the temple was basically built under the, under the authority of a foreign heathen king. So is, is the temple even, is the temple even sacred? Is the, is the high priest lineage even sacred? And not only that, but whilst the, whilst the Israelites, whilst the people of God were in captivity, they began to meet together and try to keep the custom of what they'd always known. So they had become used to not having to go to the temple to worship. They had become used to meeting in small groups and meeting in small houses and then so, so what you had before is you, ha- you would have one man, you would have a high priest, and you would have a prophet. And, you know, when things were really good, you would have a king that were all living according to the statutes and the word of God. So it was clear what God was saying. Amen? But now you have these different houses and these different groups, and they're developing different theologies and different doctrines and different understandings of Scripture and they want to faithfully hold to scripture but there is there is a division in terms of well our house understands this and our house understands that and our house understands that so we have the the raising then of scribes the scribes and the scribes are people who really study the scriptures and they try to hold fast to the scriptures but as I said, we have, we have now houses. So it's not just that we're looking to a high priest, but then there are leaders of these houses, these synagogues, and they become teachers, they become rabbis. So if I'm of this house, then I'm adhering to the doctrine of this rabbi. Are you still with me? But if I'm of that house, I'm adhering to the doctrine of that rabbi. And, and so we see in the New Testament, we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there are many differences between these two groups. But basically the Pharisees are those that really wanted to hold true to scripture and to hold true to custom, come what may. And then you had the Sadducees who wanted to still be religious Jews, but wanted that kind of easy life to a certain extent and were willing to make some um, concessions to fit in with Hellenization. Does that make sense? So that's why we we come into the New Testament and all of a sudden we've got these rabbis and we've got these scribes and we've got these Pharisees and we've got these Sadducees and everybody seems to be kind of fighting and warring against each other in the nation of Jerusalem. But not only that, when they were in captivity, the people of God, in so wanting to hold on to um, the word of God and many of their, their, their Torahs, their books would have been done away with, their writings would have been done away with and destroyed. So they didn't just have the written word of God, but they had an oral tradition, the oral word of God. But the oral tradition, it just, it wasn't just the word. So 
um, there's, a, there's a film that I like, and it's called The Book of Eli. I don't know if anybody's seen it. So it's a bit violent, so, you know. But, um, so Denzel Washington is the main character, and he's protecting this book. He's protecting this book, and there's, some, there's people coming from left, right, and center, and they're trying to kill him for this book. So, you know, Denzel, he's, he's fighting off, and there's obviously there's a girl in the story, and he's protecting this girl, but ultimately he's trying to protect this book, and he's trying to get this book effectively to the safe place, to the promised land. Um, and it's like, well, what's the big thing about this, about this book? And Eli is protecting the book and eventually gets to the promised land. But at the end of the film, and I'm going to ruin it for you now, so, but you, you know, it's too violent for you guys because you're saved. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the film, we find out that Eli is blind. Didn't know throughout the whole film, but Eli is, is blind and the book is actually in Braille. But also he'd memorize, he knew, he, all through the book, all through the film, we see him reading this text and it's like he's trying to memorize the text, but he knew the text off by heart. So even if really they had have taken the book, he still would have had the oral tradition. He was still would have known what the book said and was able to recite it. And so this is kind of what was happening in, in this time. They had the oral tradition, but it wasn't just that they had the scripture in and of itself, but they also had doctrines around the scripture. So it was like the Bible intertwined with a commentary. Does that make sense? So a commentary is when people write their understanding of what the scripture is saying. But with the commentary, sometimes people would then become a little overzealous and they would add things to the text or say that this text mean, meant this and probably take it to its furthest extent and in so kind of adding things onto the scripture. So in these 400 years of silence, what we see is that these people, they're, they're trying to hold on to the truth, but then they're also in power over, over Judea. So they're also in power. So there's a political element. And then the, you've got these factions. So there's another political element there in terms of the theology. And, and so, and then you've got who are the Jews gonna, gonna believe? Who are the Jews gonna pick? So you have these Pharisees that are raised up and initially their heart is to stay true, as true as possible to God's word. But then the word Pharisee, it means set apart. So if, if we're Israel and we're the set apart people of God and then within the set apart people of God, we want to have a group and call ourselves the set apart ones, then our set-apartness needs to be more set-apart than the rest of those that are set-apart. Does that make sense? So we have to kind of be more holy or more religious. or Do you know what I mean? There needs to be a higher aspiration that we conduct ourselves by than the, than the normal man. And so these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they were looked upon as learned people, which they were, but... Somebody said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And some of these men had become corrupted. They'd become corrupted and they began adding to the laws. And they began adding to even taxes in the temple and saying and, and raising the prices of basic things. You know, I heard a scholar say one time when Jesus says, 
in the Lord's Prayer when he says, give us this day our daily bread. He was saying that Jesus was making a political statement because the price of bread in those times had been so kind of far exceeded, but not only the price of bread, but basically things that you would need to continue in Jewish ritual, whether it's festivals or, or whatever, things that you would need to buy, they would just pump up the price of those things so that the leaders and those in power were accumulating more and more money. So when Jesus goes into the temple and there are things being sold, and, and if you look at the things that are being sold, they're, they're, things, they're doves, they're, do you know what I mean? They're, they're things that are needed for Jewish rabbinical worship. But they're selling them in the house of God. But not only are they just selling them, but they're selling them at extortionate prices, so extorting the people. So, you know, sometimes we say Jesus wasn't political. Jesus was was political. I believe that Jesus deals with every area and sphere of society and has something to say to it. Amen? I know I've taken a while on that, but... But that's, that's who Jesus is dealing with now when he's talking to the Pharisees. So sometimes we're like, why is Jesus so hard on the Pharisees when they're the religious people of the day? But Jesus sees their hearts. And don't get me wrong, not all of the Pharisees would have been corrupt. Not all of the Pharisees would have been bad. There would have been some that's real heart and desire would have been just, I just want to get this right. I just want to live for God. I just want to live for Yahweh. But Jesus calls them out and he says, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. So they call out the disciples and they say, your disciples, they're eating and they haven't washed their hands. And Jesus says, you're hypocrites. You want me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He later goes on to say that your traditions have made the word of God to be void or to be of none effect. And when we look at Leviticus, there are loads of things that God tells the, the priest to do and the people to do and ways in which he wants the Israelites to live their life. And we know that the, that the law of Moses is a tutor to bring us to Christ, to help us to identify the Messiah and to bring us closer to God. But it was in the interests of these leaders of the time to actually use the text and use the scripture to push people away from God. Because if you can draw closer to God, then it brings you on a level playing field like I am. But if, if, if I'm more holy and you're less holy then it keeps the power balance in place. Does that make sense? So Jesus is coming at them and he, he tells them that you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And you teach the doctrines, you teach as doctrines, so you teach as truth the commandments of men. See, the whole thing about cleaning hands, there were some things that I believe God told the Jews to do, like circumcision, that they had, you know, people can say, okay, circumcision is something and it helps men keep clean. So there's a practical element to it. But actually, I think the main point of God doing that 
was just to make a clear mark of separation. To say that you are different, you are mine. And there are some things that God instructs the children of Israel to do that are law just because God wants to make the separation of this, you are my people from the rest of the world. Amen. But then what is, what is, what that has taken on now is that no, this is the truth, that this is the word of God, that this, these are things that have to be and if you don't do this and if you don't wash your hands like this and if you don't follow this ritual and if you don't go to this place then you're not a, you're not a child of God and you know I was thinking whilst I was doing this and God calls David a man after his own heart and we often look at that and we wonder why because David did some pretty horrific things he did horrific things. He, he, um, one, one of his friends, his commander of his, of his armies, he took his wife, he slept with her, he, he put the man on the front of the battlefield, he made sure that he, he got killed. It's deep. And you know what, even after that, because we all, everyone talks about, you know, Bathsheba and, and David falling there, but when David was old, they were like, okay, we don't know if he's dead or not. Okay put a young woman in his bed and if there's no response then we know he's dead you kind of know that this is a guy dealing with an issue and he's not perfect yet God says he's a man after my own heart and it's when I read the Psalms that David says when David begins to say your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path at the entrance of your word is truth the love that David has for the scriptures It's kind of at odds with this this picture of pharisaical um, worship that pushes people away from God. But David, through the scriptures, is drawn to God. And I believe that was God's heart for the scriptures to draw people to God, to bring you to a place where you can get to know me. That I'm not somebody who's waiting to just punish you. But David says that God is a God of mercy. His mercies endure forever. He says that he is a God that has kept us. If it had not been for the Lord on our side, let all of Israel say, where would we be? He, he, he is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of grace. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice. But he is a God of truth. He is a God who cares and shepherds his own. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And if we look at the God of David, he's very different to the God of the Pharisees. Because the God of the Pharisees is just looking for you to step out of line. So we can say that you're, 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 you're defiled, you're unclean, you're, you're unworthy, you're not able to come to the kingdom. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, blessed are the meek for theirs is the kingdom. The kingdom is open to the meek. The kingdom is open to the brokenhearted. The kingdom is open to the downcast. The kingdom is open to the estranged. The kingdom is open to those that everybody else looks upon and says you are not worthy and Jesus says no this is the embodiment of the Godhead you are worthy and you are able to come into this you need to believe in me all you need to do is put your full hope your trust and your faith in me just got a few minutes left I know I took a lot of time kind of setting a foundation for this, but I think it's important. The whole issue, there's a reason why the Bible picks up this issue. Because the Pharisees are saying they're eating and their hands aren't clean. 
And it wasn't just going and washing your hands like we have, you know, we wash our hands. It was a ritualistic cleansing that, that probably would have taken longer than two minutes before you eat. And if you come from the marketplace, you've got to wash the whole of your body. And there's an order in which you have to wash. There's a way in which you have to wash. There are utensils that you have to use. You have to use certain bowls and whatever. And some of these things were stuff that in the Old Testament, it was only the priests that had to do them. But the Pharisees said, no, if you want to be close to God, if you want to be a real Jew, then everybody's got to do them. And for some people, they didn't have the means to be able to live like that and to be able to do those things. So they were pushed away from God. But Jesus says, whatever enters in can't defile you. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because how many conversations can we have about the types of foods that we eat and whether this is clean or whether this is unclean and in in this and I didn't look at this and it's something that I'm going to look at but in verse 19 in in this version of scripture it says that um, thus he declares all foods clean but it's written in brackets so we need to make sure that it's not the commandments of of men but then there are other times in the bible you know, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I can't kill that. It's unclean. And, and God says, kill and eat, kill and eat. And God says, don't call what I've called clean, unclean. But the issue isn't about washing your hands and things coming in defiling you. Jesus says that can have really no impact. And, and when they're saying you're defiled, they're saying you're unholy. You're unholy. So it's not just that you're unclean. Is that you're unholy, you're unrighteous. But God says, what you eat and how you eat and whether you wash your hands has no effect on your righteousness. It has no effect on your right standing with me. What has an effect on your right standing with me is the stuff that's already in you. That's the stuff that defiles you. It's the stuff that's in you that comes out of the things that defile you. It's interesting that Jesus is saying we can't be, we're not, you're not going to be defiled by the things from the outside coming in, but it's things from the inside coming out. But I thank God for Jesus because even though in this text it doesn't say specifically, but we know that Jesus' mandate is to deal with freedom from the inside out. To bind up the broken hide. To give recovery of sight to the blind. And there's a scholar that says, let's not presume that when God says something, that what we heard him say is all that he has said. There's a depth in when God speaks that it's multi-layered. <laughs> it's multi-layered. It's deep. You know, some people can say, oh, I don't like that preacher. They're not deep enough. But actually, you can go as deep as you want to go because the word of God goes deep, deeper than the deepest ocean. It's wide, it's vast. So it's about how do you then take that word and study it and mull on it and get into it according to your level of spirituality or education. But we know that Jesus is coming not just to heal physically, but to heal spiritually. Jesus says, I'm not just come 
to change your circumstances. I've not just come to change what's going on around you because that's what they thought you was going to come and do. You know, we sang that song, Ride on King Jesus, and that's what they were expecting the Messiah to come like. Come on your white horse and come and overthrow this Roman Empire and come and do away with all those people who are against your people and, and God establish your kingdom and we will reign with you forever and ever. And it wasn't that time yet. It wasn't that time yet. That time is coming, but it's not yet. But Jesus, I thank God that we serve a God who is committed to our process. Jesus knows the destination. He knows the end result. He knows where we're going to end up. But he will still take us on the journey. He has the power to transport us to the destination and the end point immediately. But we serve a God who is so committed to us. He says, I'm going to take you on the journey because on the journey, I know that I'm going to change you. I know that on the journey that I'm going to restore you. I know that on the journey, the things from within, the evil thoughts that you struggle with, the sexual immorality that you're dealing with and trying to hide, the theft, <laughs> you know, some of these things, in, in our day and age, that we, Jesus calls them sin, and we call them, um, <laughs> we call them psychological defects. <laughs> so instead of calling people, saying that you're a thief, you're a kleptomaniac. That's that's an issue that we have to, and it is an issue that we have to deal with. But ultimately, it's sin. We've got to call it what it is. Sexual immorality. Oh, I've got an addiction. You're sexually immoral. It's sin. You know, Jesus says, confess your sins. Confession is, confession, the word confession comes from the word homologio, same word. To say the same thing. When we confess our sins, we're saying what God is saying about those actions. We're saying the same thing that God says about those actions. <laughs> So God says, this is sin. And when we confess, we're saying, God, I have this in my life and it's sin. And I'm bringing it before you. And God says, if you confess your sins. <laughs> so even before you've gone through the process, if you confess your sins, not, regard, not based upon your faithfulness, but I am faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. God is committed to the journey and because he knows that on the journey, if you just stick with me, <laughs> if you just walk with me, I know that I'm going to be faithful. I know that I'm going to be faithful. All I need you to do to is, is submit. All I need you to do is surrender. And if you surrender to me, these things... These evil thoughts, this sexual immorality, this theft, this murder, this adultery, this covet covetousness, this wickedness, this deceit, this sensuality, this envy, this slander, this pride, this foolishness, all these things that come from within you, I am able to remove out of you. And I know that in the house there'll be people here today that maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're still struggling with some stuff. And because of your understanding of God, like the Pharisees, 
You're allowing the stuff to push you away from God. But God is saying, the stuff ought to draw you near to me. Because I'm the only way you can get that, that out of your life. I'm the only way that you can get delivered from that thing. I'm the only way that you can get healed from that thing. I'm the only way that that thing is going to stop. And I know we can sit here on a Sunday morning in our hats and our suits and our shirts and, and go on like we're holier than thou. But I know that I know that each one of us has an issue and has a thing that we're bringing before God. And we're saying, God, I need you to deal with this. And some of us have even got past that place. And we're like, I'm not bringing this to God anymore because it, it's shameful. And it, it, it's, it's, I should be past this by now. I should be over this by now. I should be holier than this by now. I should be more righteous than this by now and and you're allowing it to push you away so you don't pray like you used to and you don't read like you used to and you don't fast like you would want to because you are consumed by the sin that is within you but Jesus says come unto me (laughs) don't let your sin push you away from me but let your sin be the reason that you run to me Jesus son of David have mercy on me And the crowd might tell you to hush and say Jesus has better things to do than to worry about your issue. But the crowd haven't got your issue. And the crowd don't know him like you know him. Because I know him to be a healer. I know him to be a deliverer. I know him to be a reformer and a transformer and a a miracle worker. So I'm going to call out to him. I'm going to cry out to him. I'm going to press into him. And I'm not going to allow the things that come out of me to push me away from him. But I'm going to cause them to draw near to him. Because when the woman came to Jesus and she began to wipe his feet, the people around said, if he knew what manner of woman she was, he would have told her to leave him alone. But Jesus says, those who are forgiven much, love much. And I know that within the body of Christ, not just here, but within the body of Christ, there are issues that we have amongst one another. We have issues amongst one another. And I wonder if we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. I wonder if we've forgotten those things that are still lingering in our lives that Jesus is saying, come, bring that to me, bring that to me, bring that to me. I wonder if we're just accounting because we're here in this area, but we're down here in that area, but we don't give that area much thought. We just kind of focus on, yeah, I, 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 I can pray for an hour or two hours or three hours or yeah, I, I make sure that I'm there every Wednesday night. I make sure that I'm there every Monday morning. I, uh, you know, my kids are in church. My kids are safe. Like, what is it that we're holding on to? And God is saying, there's still that thing there that I need to deal with. And instead of bringing it to me, you're hiding it from me. Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I'd wanted to gather you like a hen, like a, like a, a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. But my Bible says that the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The very thing that you're running away from is the only thing that can heal you. Time's up. Time's up. And I'm going to ask pastor to come and, and to pray. I'm going to go to the altar because there are some stuff in my life that there are some stuff that comes out of me and I know in a few weeks time we're going to hear in chapter 9 about the young boy with the, with the demon 
that the disciples couldn't cast out. And Jesus says, this, this type doesn't come out but by, by much prayer and fasting. But the father says that the demon seizes him and oftentimes, what's interesting is that it's not all the time. <laughs> it's not all the time because sometimes I'm on the mountaintop. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm living my best life now. Sometimes I, I really believe that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But every now and then, there are some issues and some things that come out of me. And I'm like, what's that still doing there? And then the devil comes along and says, huh, you're supposed to be saved. You're supposed to be a church leader. You're supposed to be a, a, a Christian. In the circle of work that I work in, you're a professional Christian. How is it that you're having this stuff and it would try, the devil would try and push me away from God and say, how can you pray when you're still dealing with that? How can you fast when you're still dealing with that? How can you read and come to God and, and the scriptures when you're still dealing with that? But Jesus says, come, come. That which is pushing you away, that's not me. I know, I know they've told you that that's me. I know that, that they've told you that that's what God looks like. But this is what I look like. I look like Jesus saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'm able to set you free. I'm able to deliver you. I'm able to heal you. So I'm going to ask if, if you want to join me. If you want to join me at the altar, then join me. And let's pray. You know what? I really believe that the church of this day and age needs a real church. And needs some people who are able to confess their sins one to another. And as long as we keep this pharisaical facade up, nobody's going to get healed. Nobody's going to get set free. Nobody's going to see the power that they really need to see. It's not that God isn't willing to do miraculous things. It's are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to make yourself vulnerable? Jesus says, come. The altar's open. Bishop.